So Cole, as you know, uh, during this time of transition, has been stepping up big time uh, and taking up, filling in some of the gaps that we've had as we've transitioned uh, into to new lead pastor role. And uh, that's been a lot of work. That has taken uh, a lot of time. And, uh, and uh, so Cole approached the leadership team a little while ago about the possibility of, with some changes coming up in their lives with a new child on the way and... Uh, and also, uh, or the first child, by the way, and they're kind of excited about that. They were hoping to, uh, to step, step aside for a period of a month on a sabbatical and just to kind of take a little bit of a breather and regroup. And so we've, uh, we're excited to say that, that Cole is in his final day for until July as of today. So you can tell that if you follow him online, you see hashtag sabbatical, here I come. Right or whatever, you know, you, you, can, you can take that. It's okay. Uh, he's pretty excited about it, and this is going to be an opportunity for you and Janessa to sit back and to reflect on ministry and to be able to to go visit some other places and and find out what's going on to get some ideas and most importantly, as you expressed to me earlier when we were talking, to be able to create. You know, looking forward to that. And if you know Cole, both Cole and Janessa are very creative people, and uh, there's something fulfilling. We almost feel God's pleasure most of all in that process of creating, just like he creates. So he's going to uh, disappear. I don't know that it's entirely disappear, but you're going to be not around very much uh, until, until July, I guess, with his marriage in, in back in July. And we want to wish him the best in the sabbatical. This is a time to, uh, to, to recharge. Uh, it is a structured thing. It isn't a vacation for two months, I understand, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's not going to be down in the basement playing video games. For the whole time. For the whole time. <laughs> a little bit, maybe. But before, we, uh, we, uh, and before they enjoy that sabbatical time, we just wanted, as a congregation, as we did this morning in the first service, to pray for both Cole and Janessa, that as they go into this uh, stage of life, a sabbatical stage, and as they anticipate a new child coming along. Their lives are going to really change going forward. So a very knowing laugh over there. Yeah. So let's just pray together. Father, you know that we love this man dearly, and we love Janessa as well. We just think that they are just a key part of our family here, and we thank you for bringing them to us. We thank you for everything that they are uh, and everything that they do. But more importantly, I thank you for the people that they have chosen to be. They reflect your goodness and your grace. They reflect uh, questioning attitudes. They, they don't take the status quo. And uh, that is just something that we appreciate so much around here. We have seen you grow uh, and, and cause Cole to, to grow in stature and, 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 uh, and just in his abilities and his giftedness. And, and we just thank you for that. And we just know that you have great things planned for him going forward in this next sabbatical period. And we just know that uh, they're going to so much enjoy having uh, a new member to the family. Father, we pray for, for them as they go forward here that you would make this time a time of rest, a time of reflection, and a time of energizing their ministry together, we pray. And Father, we just ask for your blessing upon this place in their absence that you would continue to help us to be people who are honestly and seeking, seeking you and looking for you in all things. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Yeah. Well, welcome to week two of our series entitled pa Pathos, or Passion, Pathos. 
We've chosen this time after Easter and between, um, be before Pentecost to explore this idea of passion, of excitement, of the things that animate us spiritually as we, as we uh, participate in the kingdom of God. And it's a part of our ministry plan here at Forest View, a part of our three-year plan and a part of our essential ingredients that we have this vision for this place to be filled with passionate followers of Jesus Christ who are working out what it means to live in this culture and in this place and in this community in a way that is exciting and animated, in a way that is going to change lives and change our world around us. And Cyril started this off last week when he was talking to us from the book of Matthew and talking about Matthew 24 and kind of hit on a verse that I think is really the touchstone for me when I think about this. And it's, it's a description of when the um, disciples, some of the disciples, Mary Magdalene particularly, met with Jesus along the way in the garden. And Jesus begins to explain something of himself from the scriptures. And it says this, he says, were not our hearts burning within us while, we while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were our hearts not burning when he opened up the scriptures to us and showed us who he was? That's passion. That is the animating quality that comes from having an intimate relationship and an experience with the living Christ. And that's the thing we desire for this place, Forest View, or this time, this time, this place, and this people, that we might be animated in that same way as a result of having experienced the risen Christ at work in our lives. The world is a place that needs this kind of passion. We don't need to look far to see that, that people are, are involved with lives that are passionless that they go through life going through the motions of having nothing that they can cling on to, nothing that gives them hope, nothing that drives them or animates their spirits in a way that Jesus Christ can do and his power, uh, his kingdom can do. One of the quotes that I've come to appreciate recently from Dallas Willard, a great thinker from USC, uh, writer of a number of Christian books, a, a, a wonderful philosopher who passed away a few years ago, says this, he says, the greatest issue facing our world today with, its heartbreak, with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That, to me, is a great definition of what it means to be a passionate follower of Christ, a passionate disciple of Christ, steadily learning how to, from him how to live that life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Out of that engagement, out of that experience of, of encountering Jesus in a meaningful way, in a way that is real, in a way that is life-altering, comes this passion to live that out in the world. And so today, we, we, we've been looking at, or over the past few weeks, we've been looking at this passion, what it means to be passionate in suffering, what it means to be passionate for the world. We'll be eating our way around the world next next. Uh, next uh, Sunday, and I feel sometimes as if I've eaten around the world several times. 
but we are exploring this idea of passion over the next few weeks. And today we're going to be focusing on, if you looked at your notices when you came in, it's called Passion for the Truth. Now, in all honesty, I have a bit of a quibble with that title. Passion for the Truth sends a shiver up and down my spine. It takes me back to Sunday school days when I was forced to remember certain doctrines and dogmas and, and things like that where we had to know what the truth was. The truth was dictated to us, and it was very immutable, unchangeable, and it really had nothing to do with real life. And I don't believe that that is the kind of truth that we're being called to be passionate about. Rather, it's this. It is the passion that we have to live out the truth of our encounter with Jesus in our lives, to be an accurate reflection of our encounter with the living Christ in our communities, in our families, in our workplace, and all around the world. We live out that passionate. We are called to be a passionate people. And we're going to be looking today at a uh, passage of Scripture that talks about that. And it takes place during the time of the resurrection in the time of Pentecost. It's actually called Eastertide in the liturgical calendar. I didn't know it had a name until a few weeks ago. So happy Eastertide. This is the second Easter, or second Sunday of Eastertide. I'd never heard of that, but there you go. A little tidbit you'll remember when you take away and forget everything else I'm talking about this morning. Eastertide. So that's that space between, that space between the resurrection and the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost a period of about 50 days. And this is a very much an in-between space. This is very much a space that is filled with mystery. It's a time that was filled with uncertainty. It was a time that was filled with fear. It's what we might describe as a liminal space. I have a good friend who talks a lot about being in a liminal space right now. They're kind of in-between. And what does that mean exactly? Well, I have an example of that. What does it mean to be in liminal space? There you go. It was so handy when that came up this week. Liminal space is this. It comes from the Latin word limens, which means to be on the threshold. And it's, I, love the, I love the description that, that, it, it, that it gives here. It says this. It says that you are in liminal space uh, when you are anxiously floating in the in-between if you are in the anxiously floating in the in-between, you are in liminal space. And a lot of us, in reality, do find ourselves maybe not quite like this, but floating in that liminal space of almost but not quite. We have a glimpse of a promise, but we don't have the fulfillment. We're uncertain. We're on the threshold of something new. And we have left what is tried and what is true, and we're really very uncertain of what is up ahead. That's defined as this liminal space. And the reason I make that point is because the disciples who we're going to be looking at a little bit later on were very much in that liminal space. Jesus had been raised from the dead, or at least there were rumors of that. Some of the disciples had seen him and were quite excited by that and reported back that they had had the epiphanies of, of meeting the risen Christ. But some of the disciples hadn't, so there's a great degree of uncertainty. Nobody could put together what all of this meant. Nobody had a broad picture, a broad context in which to put any of these things. So it was a time of some uncertainty. It was a time of some fear. It was a time of some difficulty. And the disciples are called to try and live out 
the truth of the resurrected Christ in this period of liminal space, of in-between time. And I believe that in 2017, we still find ourselves in that liminal space. We are called sometimes to leave what is tried and true. And as we are involved in understanding a fresh revelation of the risen Christ, we are called to try and live that out into our culture. Live that out into our work lives. Live that out into our family lives. And it's going to look a little bit different. And it's uncertain. It's untried. We don't know necessarily how it's going to end up. Now, one of the things that's important to understand is we were saying we need to try to live out the truth. And truth is a very difficult thing to define in this culture. If you want to make yourself popular at a party, go and say, I know the truth about anything. I know the truth about this. I know the truth about that. You're not going to be very popular because our culture in this postmodern time that we find ourselves in has a disregard for this idea of absolute truth. Truth is something that is, is difficult for us to understand. It's difficult for us to get our heads around. And so the disciples here are tr- going to be trying to understand what is the truth about Jesus And they're trying to come to to terms what is the absolute reality of their experience. The truth is something for them that is reliable, that they can count on it, that they can trust in it, that it's going to be the same as it was yesterday, that it is going to shift beneath their feet. And so they're called to understand what the truth about Jesus is. We sometimes have a hard time determining what is true little exercise. Just think for a moment with me about the time, first time in your life when you understood that something you always thought was true wasn't. How did that make you feel? The first time that you thought about something that was always true, always dependable, always reliable, wasn't. Think for a moment about your first experience with that. What did that feel like? Maybe it was on Christmas Eve when you came down early for a glass of water because you were too excited to stay in bed and you saw that as well as stuffing your stocking, your father was also stuffing his face with the cookies he so carefully decorated for St. Nicholas. It kind of rocks our world a little bit, doesn't it? Makes us question reality. But there's no Santa. What else? Maybe it was a time when you lost your tooth. And when you placed that carefully under your pillow at night and put your hand over top of it. Hoping that the tooth fairy would come and and slip a a loony, or if you were really lucky, a toony, underneath there for that tooth. And when you felt that hand slip underneath your pillow, you opened your eyes. And lo and behold, the tooth fairy looked remarkably like mom. It's difficult, isn't it, sometimes when the truth uh, isn't what we expect it to be. And the truth of of the matter is, the the case of the matter is that often we have built a a series of myths around truths that we are not not really independently verifiable, and we live our lives believing in these myths. 
In my family, we have a story, and uh, it is since the, well, I'll explain it to you. We have a, a story, and it's a myth in our family, and it's about two gold sovereigns. Two gold sovereigns. And these gold sovereigns are banded in metal, and they have been made into a set of cufflinks, and they've been around our house, or my father's house, uh, now, ever since I was a little child, and I used to be fascinated by them because they were shiny and they were, they were precious, and, they, and we didn't have objects like that in our house growing up very often. And uh, they, these were very special. And I remember, and I don't know even to this day how this myth became. I think you might have told me this. But, but I remember sitting down one time and asking about, where do these coins come from? What are these about? And he lifted me up on his knee in my mind's eye and began to tell me this story. Uh, but how in 1953 he left the city of Belfast in Northern Ireland. I was corrected about that earlier today. Northern Ireland on his way across the ocean to go to Canada, eventually to wind his way in Australia, and he was leaving home for, for the final time. And that on the, as he got ready to get on, on that great ship, the Cunard Lines in 1953, that my grandmother came up to him and, 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 and in tears handed him these coins that had been wrapped and made into cufflinks and gave them to him as a gift and said, look, son, if no matter where you go, these will always remember, uh, always remember that I love you and that these will always be able to bring you home. No matter where you go, you'll be always be able to sell these so you can buy your passage home. And I thought, what a wonderful story. Tears going down my eyes. It's great. You know, mother's love. And I started, I started to look at these objects with new appreciation. I imbued them with great value and worth. These were heirlooms, and I hoped that at some day that I would be able to, to pass, the, uh, pass these on to my grandchildren and tell them the story of their great, great grandmother who, who gave these to my, uh, the grandmother who gave them to my father, and he held on to these, and these were always there to get home, their passage home. What a wonderful story. Well, when I was in my late 20s, I sat down with my mother in the kitchen one time, and I said, we're having a cup of tea, and I said, you know what? Dad was out of the office, Dad was away, and he said, I said, you know, tell me again this story about these coins. I love these coins. I was holding them when she sent me away. She says, well, your father won those because he exceeded his sales quota <laughs> in 1958. And he sold more sugar-frosted flakes than the last guy. He sold a few cases more, and he got to choose between those and a set of golf clubs. And I wanted those, and he wanted the golf clubs. I was gutted. <laughs> Shattered. The myth that I had so carefully constructed came crumbling down around me. What am I to believe? What am I to trust? Who am I to trust? Well, that's a silly little story. But we do create myths around things. We create myths around people. And those myths don't always hold up the reality of truth. Those myths don't always hold up very well as we go on so, uh, in, in life. Those myths sometimes are very disappointing and very disillusioning. We feel desperate. Sometimes we do it spiritually as well. We create myths around who Jesus is. We create stories in our minds 
create myths of our own making about how Jesus should behave and how Jesus will act and how Jesus will react into our lives. And those stories, those myths are usually created about, really about us, how we want God and Jesus to intervene in our life and give us this, or we want Jesus to do this, or we want Jesus to, to settle this, or Jesus want, we want Jesus to help us be healthy and wealthy and satisfied, and we want Jesus to make our kids great. And, and we create these myths around Jesus, Jesus the magician, Jesus the provider, Jesus. And quite honestly, I wonder whether some of these myths that we create around the living Christ have any basis in reality. And I want to suggest to you that in John's Gospel, chapter 21, at the end of the Gospel of John, we encounter Peter, who is struggling with these myths of his own creation, these myths that he has created for himself. After living with Jesus for three and a half years, you think he would get it, but it seems clear that he has missed the point as to who Jesus is. I believe that John, or uh, that, that Peter, viewed John, or, or rather Jesus, as someone who was going to overthrow the Roman government. He was going to make all things right. He was going to restore the, the throne of Jerusalem uh, to, to the rightful king, and he was going to be a political messiah. I believe that, John, uh, that Peter, after seeing Jesus manifest the loaves and the fishes and feed the 5,000, a miraculous sign of who he was, he believed that somehow Jesus was going to be the provider, the Messiah provider, and he created this myth in his mind around that, and he needed to be, he needed to be, uh, he, he, he needed to be corrected of that. I believe that Peter uh, had personal ambitions that he saw fulfilled in, in, in Jesus as he would rise up through the ranks of the kingdom of the, the Messiah and he would be at his right hand, always ready to prepare to, to take care of him, to, to slay those who would, who would threaten Jesus, carried with him a sword. We see that in kind of his impetuous attitude. And I believe that if you read through the Gospel of John and through the other Gospels, Peter in particular, you begin to see that he created a myth, a mythical Jesus that didn't have any basis in reality. But what happens when our myths crumble? When, Jesus, when Peter follows Jesus to Jerusalem on the final journey before he goes to the cross, we read that Jesus, uh, Peter is rather disturbed by some of the things that Jesus are starting to say because these didn't add up. His myths didn't equate to what Jesus was telling him. When Jesus goes and tells him that, that he must go into Jerusalem and he must be lifted up and he's going to a place where Peter can't go, Peter doesn't get this. He says, I can go with you anywhere. I mean, Lord, I love you more than these other disciples. I will follow you anywhere. And Jesus tells him that before the night is out, Peter, in spite of your proud boast, in spite of who you think I am, you will deny that you even know me three times. And Peter says, that can never be. As Peter goes on a little further on, Jesus is taken in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken to the Sanhedrin where he's put on trial. And we read that John and Peter sneak into this trial and Peter's confronted by the smallest servant girl, the least of all of the crowd there. And she says, don't I remember seeing you with Jesus, and Peter says, no, I don't know the man. Another person comes to him, and he says, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter says, no, I don't know the man. 
A third person comes to this, I know I've seen you there before. Peter says, no, I, I don't know the man. And immediately he is aware as the rooster crows that he has denied knowing Jesus three times. Now, I want to suggest to you that Peter is probably not really afraid. He's not an afraid kind of person. Peter, I would describe him as ready, fire, aim. It's like my father, actually. He's ready, fire, aim. Act first, think later. I don't think Peter was afraid. I think in my mind's eye, I see Peter, when he's confronted by these people, he is actually saying that I don't know this Jesus who is sitting here not defending himself. I don't know this Jesus who is not going to be willing to get himself out of this situation. I don't know this Jesus who is willing to die. I don't know him. And so he is not denying Jesus because he is afraid. He's denying Jesus because he really honestly doesn't know this Jesus. His myths are all collapsing. We read after the resurrection that Jesus begins to appear to some of the disciples, that he begins to um, appear to Mary uh, Magdalene when she comes to the tomb in the morning. And Peter and John, and hearing that the stone has been rolled away, run to the tomb and as fast as they can, John getting there first because he was younger and faster, but stopping outside of the tomb. And as Peter runs up behind him, he looks inside the tomb and he reads and he sees that Peter looks, walks into the tomb and he looks at the grave clothes. And it says that John believed, John understood, John see what was going on. John had an epiphany, he had an encounter with the risen Christ at that point in time. But we read that Peter says nothing, he goes home. And so when we encounter Peter in John's Gospel, chapter 21, we are encountering someone who has given up on Jesus, who has denied him, who has said that I cannot do this anymore, who has said that the past three and a half years, they were an experience, but I am done. I don't know this Jesus. And so when we come to John's Gospel, chapter 21, we read these words. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, do you have any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat toward towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There was the fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, 
Bring some of the fish you just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said, said to them, come and ask, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to him and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Peter might have been finished with Jesus, but Jesus was not finished with Peter. time when Jesus and Peter most needed it. He was at his lowest point. Jesus reaches out to him and gives him a glimpse of himself. At a time when he had given up, he had called it a day, he'd gone back to his fish business and said, been there, done that, no more. Jesus reaches out, gives him a glimpse of himself. The time when he had denied him three times, Jesus intervenes and says, come, get out of here. You're going to know who I really am. Peter had given up. He was going. He was done. He was heading for the hills. And Jesus didn't allow him that. If you read further on, after these things, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was perfect. So Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Three times Jesus asked Peter, asked Peter do you love me? First of all, it says, do you love me more than these? What's he referring to? Well, he could be referring to the fish. Do you love me more than fish, Peter? Or he could be referring to the fact that the other disciples were there and Jesus and, and Peter had boasted earlier on in the Gospel of John that, Jesus, that he loved Jesus more than those other disciples do. I'm, I'm, I'm your guy, Jesus. And, Peter is, or, and Jesus is, is asking Peter, Peter, do you really love me more than these? That could be what he's asking as well. 
I think the emphasis is on the wrong thing. And so, Peter, do you love me? Not the mythical Jesus. But do you love me as I've shown up in your life right now? Yes, Lord. Please be true. Peter, a third time, or a second time rather, do you love me more than the mythical Jesus? Yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me more than the mythical Jesus you've made up in your mind, more than the Roman conqueror, more than the, 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 the bread provider, more than the miracle worker, more than the, do you see me, Jesus, Peter, for who I am? Yes, Lord. Please be true. I find it interesting that what Jesus does not ask Peter to do is to go study. He doesn't ask him to go and to, to learn about this and to systematize it or do anything else. He simply says, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Empty yourself. Pass it on. Share. Be selfless. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Look for the weakest and the most vulnerable. Take care of them. Feed my sheep. In deconstructing all of the mythical Jesuses that Peter had created, he receives a glimpse of the risen Christ, the Son of the living God. Do not be deceived. Who holds the keys of hell in his hands, who can die no more. Peter gets a glimpse of that, the true Christ. And what's he to do with that? Passionately share. Live out that truth. Share it, Peter. Share it. Jesus goes on to tell him that, you know, Peter, up until now you've been a pretty independent sort. But having seen who I am, really, Truly, dependably, reliably, immutably. Having seen that, Peter, you have no choice but to yield to this. Follow me. Follow me. You may be able to decide what you want to do right now or think where you're going. You may have your own ambitions, but Peter, those days are over. Follow me. And by the way, Peter, this may not end up well, but follow me. It's putting before Peter a sense of limit. Peter, you got to do that. You've seen the truth. You have to live it out. You will not have it forever. You will not have it for all time. You have to live it out in the world around you. Peter, follow me. So what do people who live the truth look like? All the passionate followers of Jesus. Who's feeding lambs, who's tending sheep, who involves in ministering to the lost and the least, who involves in communities, who is sharing their vision of the risen Christ, the one who holds all things together in his hands. That's what Peter does. 
They look like people who know that they're on borrowed time. And as a result of that, they are determined and intentional and focused and missional and, dis- and, and engaged and realizing that the time is short because those are the people who have gotten a vision of the true risen Christ. The mythical Jesus is gone. And we're left with this vision, this perfect vision of who Jesus is. And they can't do anything about it. Passionate about the truth? Are we passionate about the truth? Are we sure? Feeding the lamb? Are we involved in, in the, with the least and the lost? Are we engaged? Are we intentional about what we do? Do we realize? Are we restless because we know that the time is short? I suggest to you that if we have had an encounter with the living Christ, that's what our life looks like. But maybe we're just chasing, chasing myths. This is another place where we're engaging the living Christ. The table. Where wine and bread are. Where the bread is a symbol of his body broken. Where the wine is a symbol of his blood shed. It gives us another glimpse of the reality of who Jesus is. Not just a teacher. Not just a moral philosopher. Not a miracle worker. Not someone that we can kind of go to as a piggy bank and make all things better. Not someone who is primarily concerned with our, our wealth, our health, our success, our happiness. But someone who has taken on death and destruction and wickedness and evil and come up victorious. The risen Christ. Father, for these emblems, we thank you. They're symbols precious symbols of our of our Lord the risen Christ the bread speaks of his body the wine speaks of the blood that he shed for us and the cost it speaks to us of our communion with him as well it speaks to us of the revelation that we have of him when we have that encounter with the living risen Father, that's a mystical thing, and we don't completely understand it, and we continue to work those things out in our own lives to see what they look like, but we do know this, that we can be changed by this truth, and we can live by this truth. Father, bless us as we break bread and share it and pass it. We ask that his name, for his sake, the glory of the risen Lord,